totally unrelated. A place for history, trivia, media, brain farts, and the occasional venting session. My name is Diana. And I am Irina. For this episode, uh, I'd like to talk about something that I know we've both complained about. Uh, namely, the ways in which some people use what sounds like either a well-thought-out argument uh, or a reference to some idea you've vaguely heard about and have uncritically accepted uh, to push some toxic, cruel, or plainly stupid ideas. Um, or sometimes to paper over issues that are controversial but we should really, really talk about. And sometimes all of the above. Uh, hence the titles for, uh, title for this episode. Words, what are they even good for? Calling bullshit on willfully deceitful language. Yeah, okay. I mean, sounds really like it's going to have a lot of... Zest to it. Zest, exactly. Okay, do, okay. do go ahead. Yeah, well, as you know, uh, my know this is somewhat personal to me because part of my job is to write about uh, facts and figures, as they say. And every now and then I uh, get really frustrated because of uh, being asked, well, required to write things in a way that I feel uh, is deceitful. Um, am I asked? to tell bold-faced lies. No, like bosses won't tell you, oh, this is a lie, but you need that paycheck, right? So go on and write up that story. Um, <laughs> they don't go rather than full be... anime villains or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, rather than being asked to just lie, you have to emphasize certain things mm. uh, and make them seem more noteworthy than you know you might think they are mm -hmm. uh, also I, I find that quite a lot of deceitfulness is done through omission uh, rather than distortion of facts so you have some people insisting that well we just put the data out there and if we try to just present it in as bland and straightforward way as possible uh, we are just data people doing data because we don't want to upset uh, anyone by saying something about the context in which the data operates. Uh, but, you know, even if you have that approach, you are still deciding what data are we going to look at because obviously you cannot include everything. So you are already making a decision about what gets, you know, sort of uh, into that mix, into that research. And then, of course, the way the data is presented, even on the basic uh, layout level. So you direct readers' attention towards some things and away from others, right? Uh, and just because you have a chapter-long disclaimer at the end or a methodology, uh, most people won't register the caveats. And the thing is, you sort of know that in the back of your mind. Yeah, sure. But... I mean, I, I honestly, I think this is genuinely a problem only if you willfully decided you want to hit a certain angle and you omit, um, you know, you, the, the data that you know will not prove your point, but for the rest of what you're saying, any sort of interaction will be an interaction where you interfere, you know? I mean, uh, if, if it's not a, a straight up dot from point A to point B, 
your own understanding of the data, even if you try to be so-called objective, will be modified. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that there is no such thing as a um, connection between two people or people and data where there isn't in, in any way an influence. There is no such thing like a thing happening in a vacuum. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. But uh, I would say that the public perception of uh, sort of non-editorialized content is usually that it's as close to being objective as possible just because it relies on data. But, you, you know, it never really just relies on data because you're also offering an interpretation of the data because otherwise you're just putting tables and spreadsheets in front of people and most people will not like to look at numbers sure and numbers. It, it really depends what the question at the beginning of the conversation is because most questions in uh, scientific studies are trying to be really really simple with a yes or no answer you know um, yeah, but you see, in terms of what gets out into the public yes, discourse, but, but if you write th them, those very simple questions, yeah. tend not to be so sexy because <laughs> yeah. we like the, the the complex questions, the ones that are controversial. And yes, catchy. and but if if what you're doing is actually you know stating an opinion, then. It most definitely, even if you are trying, in your own head, you are trying to present all the angles, it, it's not going to be that. And if to begin with, the person is not actually trying to be correct, then things get even more, you know, interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, I, somehow, uh, I, I know that's not the angle we are going for, but I'm very fascinated by this idea that um, there is no such thing as an interaction that is not in any way altered, you know, uh, because yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I've read this study uh, where you put identical things, like genuinely identical things on the right and on the left for people in rows, and you ask them to pick which one they most want, and they will pick one, even if they are identical. And the, the situation being on the right or on the left makes you feel like you want something more than the other, even if they are identical. So even things that are extremely unimportant make, your, make you somewhat sway your uh, objectivity, let's say. So, mm -hmm. you know, if it, if, 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 it's, if you're somebody who actually studied this, your ability to actually sway the opinion of the people who listen to you will be, well, big. <laughs> Just don't use your powers for evil. Don't use your powers for evil, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's uh, try to get back to uh, the topic in hand. Well, I, I mean, uh, as you said, there are many uh, ways to approach this subject because it's pretty—it's a pretty vast um, subject. But mm -hmm. I thought that uh, you know, while I was looking up my bookmarks uh, and stuff for this uh, episode. Uh, I stumbled upon an article study 
that I think can act as a useful structure for the discussion because uh, it captures quite a few of our pet peeves, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, Want to see what I got here? Yeah, sure. Please don't. Please don't say no because <laughs> I don't have a plan B. <laughs> so. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so have you heard about a guy called, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Gregory Mankiv? No. Okay, I haven't uh, either until recently, and uh, although I'll briefly go over his background, what we're really interested in here are ideas, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we're all about the marketplace of ideas. Let them roam free and let the weak ones be hunted down and gobbled up by the strongest of a pack. Oh, he already sounds like a wonderful person. Do go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> so Greg Mankiv is an American Mac. A macroeconomist and currently a professor of economics at Harvard. Uh, he's the author of two highly popular college tech t- textbooks. Uh, he has also been an economic advisor to several Republican politicians and has held the position of chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under George W. Bush. From 2006, he worked with Mitt Romney and followed him throughout his presidential campaigns in 2008 and 2012. Um, I'm not saying this to poison the well, uh, but the point is that regardless of his intellectual integrity, he is clearly a rather politically engaged individual. Okay. Um, yeah, so... Um, so in... Um, 2013, uh, as a response to the Occupy movement, which managed to at least somewhat bring the issue of social inequality into the public discourse, Mankiff writes a paper, uh, rather provocatively titled, Defending the 1%. (laughs) (laughs) Very provocative, very edgy. I am triggered. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So... um, (laughs) Let me read some, before we begin, let me read some interesting bits. Uh, Apparently, uh, in uh, 2011, several of his economics students students staged a walkout from his classes after handing him the following open letter, which criticized his approach to uh, the subject. Because remember, his textbooks are sort of essential reading for, uh, for them. Uh, So they they complained about the following. We found a course that espouses a specific and limited view of economics that we believe perpetuates problematic and inefficient systems of economic inequality in our society today. Economics 10 makes it difficult for subsequent economics courses to teach effectively as it offers only one heavily skewed perspective rather than a solid grounding on which other courses can expand. Harvard graduates play major roles in the financial institutions and in shaping public policy around the world. If Harvard fails to equip its students with a broad and critical understanding of economics, their actions are likely to harm the global financial system. The last five years of economic turmoil have been proof enough of this. That's a lot of economics in that sentence, in that phrase. (laughs) Okay. So the point, I guess, is that uh, his bias is showing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, <clears throat> his, defa- his defense of the 1%. Uh, he starts off by asking readers to imagine perfect economic equality and how that would look. A perfect equilibrium of supply and demand, everyone earning the exact same income. But why? 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 
I, I can already feel the straw man being built. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I'm so fantastically annoyed by these thought experiments that have no point because there is nobody proposing this and there is no way of achieving this. So what are we even talking about? Okay. Well, I mean, the whole point is that you don't e really even, want to Even if we it. would somehow be a population of clones identical to one another, we still wouldn't achieve this. So, ah, oh, okay. Yeah, but he's not, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say that he's not arguing in, in good faith. Yeah. Uh, no, so, no shed. You know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it didn't take long for us to, to establish that. Part of his uh, sort of uh, perfect economic equality, as I said, so everyone has the same income and then everyone has just about enough of an incentive to provide the right amount of work. Mm. Then he says this, the government still needed to provide public goods, such as national defense but those are financed with a lump sum tax. There is no need for taxes that would distort incentives such as income tax because they would be strictly worse for everyone. <laughs> Just like, what? why? <laughs> Just right off the bat, why? Because I am guessing that the idea behind the lump sum tax is that, well, now you can't have an egalitarian society while you're taxing people unequally. Uh, but the point is, like, you never start off with a clean slate. Whenever you decide to alter the face of a given societal structure, you have to start off with what you already have. And that means you are already going to have inequality that you need to mitigate, right? Well, not, so you not if have... it's just a silly thought experiment where you sort of made up a population in a vacuum in your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, cause, uh, so, like, continuing my idea, you can't just have the billionaire paying the same lump sum as the average worker because, okay, so they pay an equal, they have an equal contribution, but at the end of the day, uh, that contribution isn't equal in terms of the proportion of whatever they have available. Of course. And that also translates in, more importantly, uh, in the huge difference in terms of power and influence that they end up having as human beings within a society. So, oh well. Of course, the of course the idea that everyone has the same income is also just arguing in bad faith, faith as we established, because you know, uh, unless we're talking fully automated luxury gay space communism here. <laughs> <laughs> there's no denying <laughs> there's no denying that there are jobs that would need I'm, to offer I mean I incentive. object to the gay space it needs to, it needs to be a pen space <laughs> like everybody with everybody okay. in order to be the uh, utopia egalitarian utopia we're talking about here <laughs> okay, okay comrade I will yield that point okay <laughs> So the point is that you need, for, for some activities, you need a greater incentive if you want anyone to do them, mostly because, uh, you know, they are not particularly pleasant or, you know, they're not, uh, they don't hold any prestige, they're not uh, pleasant. Uh, so, yeah, you need, you need special incentives. Of course. But, you know, in the world we live in, usually the worst jobs aren't, 
particularly well incentivized anyhow so no the, the, the incentive those people have is if you don't do them we'll let you die yeah so anyway um every good story needs a disruptive event so this whole perfect equilibrium that he's uh, talking about is now facing disruption okay uh here's how uh, he describes uh the the end of this uh, perfect equilibrium then one day this egalitarian utopia is disturbed by an entrepreneur <laughs> with an idea for a new product <laughs> think of the entrepreneur as steve jobs as he develops the ipod can you imagine who is the second uh, example he's giving <laughs> elizabeth holmes <laughs> it's it's a woman so you know it's woke <laughs> even though he probably doesn't want to look to come across as woke. Okay, who? J.K. Rowling. Mm. She writes her Harry Potter books. Okay, because like nobody wrote a book before J.K. Rowling and all the books before all the books before Harry Potter were perfectly equal to each other and then J.K. Rowling came and wrote Harry Potter. <laughs> literally the first woman to write the book of course and then she was so successful so you cannot claim that we are living in a sexist world okay uh and the third example is steven spielberg as he directs his blockbuster movies <sighs> when the entrepreneur's product is introduced everyone in society wants to buy it they each part with say 100 bucks the transaction is a voluntary exchange, so it must make both the buyer and the seller better off. But because there are many buyers and only one seller, the distribution of economic well-being is now vastly unequal. The new product makes the entrepreneur much richer than everyone else. The society now faces a new set of questions. How should the entrepreneurial disturbance in this formerly egalitarian outcome alter public policy? Oh my God. I mean, he, 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 like, he talks to students of Harvard and he discusses these ideas. Like, I mean, like this is not the whole thing that societies have been discussing and doing and redoing since the beginning of times. Jesus. Okay. So, you know, there are, there, there are several things happening here. Because, like, first off, most of the examples he's citing, and I would argue it's not just, uh, this does not refer strictly to the free people he mentions. Uh, but, like, most sort of products and services that people would pay for, uh, they're in no way the result of one brilliant mind acting or, on his or her own. Mm -hmm. Because even if you think of something like, an author writing a book uh, in order to get that book to be published and to the to distribute it to the public uh, you're probably relying on the work of some other people even if you publish online because you have to have a server that is set up by someone you have to uh, have probably an editor I mean come you come on you probably want to have an editor are, are, are <laughs> you are you trying to tell me that there is there is no such a thing as a completely self-made man or woman <laughs> is, is that where you're going 
I would argue there isn't such a thing. Not not unless we're just talking in terms of pure thought experiments that have very little relevance to the real world. <laughs> I can see the red paint on your wall then, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the point is that while the buyers might voluntarily part with their 100 bucks, um, how that money is shared among the collective that has made a product or service possible is beyond their control. And sadly, it's usually beyond the control of most people who contributed mm -hmm. to those products and services yes. as well. So this is not a question of denying the fact that, yes, there are things that can become at some point extremely popular and hence drive unusually big sums of money towards a, that product or service. That's not the point. But who gets to win the lottery when these events occur? Well, the, that, that's the whole point of the debate. And whether it tends to be a small group of people again and again. Mm -hmm. Because, lest we forget, once you've hit the jackpot once, you then have resources to anticipate or sometimes even facilitate such dis disruptive events in the future. Of course. Because, you know, you need money to make money. Of course. So, a few paragraphs down, Mankiff starts showing his hand, so to speak. Here's what he says. In my view, this thought experiment captures, in an extreme and stylized way, it is a very extreme and stylized way indeed, <laughs> what has happened to U.S. society over the past several decades. Since the 1970s, average incomes have grown, but the growth has not been uniform across the income distribution. The incomes at the top, especially in the top 1%, have grown much faster than the average, these high earners have made significant economic contributions, but they have also reaped large gains. The question for public policy is what, if anything, to do about it. So let me get let let me get this straight. Un until the 1970s, America was a somewhat egalitarian society, and then it's <laughs> <laughs> where things went astray. <laughs> you know, I, I... I just wanted to point out that little, that little thing at the end, which was like, because he says, what, if anything, if anything needs to be done? I mean, that is such a perfect phrase to capture us how, how reluctant these people actually are in having a conversation about solutions. Like, even if you can get them to admit there is a problem, their first order of business is to make sure that the other side's solutions are invalidated, which, okay, fair enough. That's what you try to do a lot of times when there is a lot of stake in a battle of ideas, but uh, they just want to convince people so hard that you need to leave things alone. This is the best thing. It's damage control, really. You cannot do anything more. Yeah. And, you know, there are then, of course, the, the really vile people who look at the problems and then push for things that will make them even worse because they know they won't be directly impacted and, frankly, they don't give a shit about anything or anyone else. So, Mankiff proceeds to ask the question, is inequality really all that bad? Only he says, well, depending on who is unequal, morals and values uh, come into play. So let's uh, talk economics here. And since some eco economists argue that inequality is not something you want because it also means there is a lot of inefficiency creeping into your system, 
he turns his attention towards this idea. So inequality is bad because inefficiency. More common is the claim that inequality is inefficient in the sense of shrinking the size of the economic pie. If the top 1% is earning an extra $1 in some way that reduces the income of the middle class and the poor by $2, then many people will see that as a social problem worth addressing. For example, suppose the rising income share of the top 1% were largely attributable to successful rent-seeking. Joseph Stiglitz's book, The Price of Inequality, spends many pages trying to convince the reader that such rent-seeking is a primary driving force behind the growing incomes of the rich. This essay is not the place for a book review, but I can report that I was not convinced. Stiglitz's narrative relies more on exhortation and anecdote than on systematic evidence. There is no good reason to believe that rent-seeking by the rich is more pervasive today than it was in the 1970s, when the income share of the top 1% was much lower than it is today. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, you know, bitch, please. <laughs> so, you know, rent-seeking doesn't only apply to paying actual rent for use of a property, but let's just focus on that bit, just for a second. Like, look at the increase in rent compared to people's income, which is mm -hmm. also due to stagnant wages. Uh, the fact that in some places, housing development, especially affordable housing, is delayed or scrapped in favor of luxury condos. They are then used as a sort of money deposit for foreign and domestic investors rather than as homes. Also, sometimes housing just doesn't get built or construction is delayed precisely mm -hmm. to drive up prices. Not to mention that since you have uh, fewer government-sponsored housing projects, for instance, private companies don't have to worry about competition from the public uh, sector. Also, many companies that own these buildings will renovate the property, whether that is needed or not, to, to then justify a price hike in the rent. And if the tenants alert the authorities about this, there have been uh, cases, documented cases, about landlords who've sent out people to, to just sort of drill into outside walls or otherwise damage the premises so that then they can claim that the buildings really need work done and then they can, again, increase the rent. So, you know, as we said about just like willfully omitting data and context that would, yeah... Uh, and, and, and yeah, and on top of all of this, you know, uh, what about all the mergers, which, you know, mean that it means that even in terms of private companies competing on the market, you have a smaller and smaller set of players, which makes it easier and also more efficient for them to just reach an agreement behind closed doors than to fight it out on the market. Of course. And I mean, also, also the fact in itself that even if um, the seeking of rent, you know, the, the desire of wealthy people to get rent and the need of the poorer people who don't have housing to pay rent, even if the feelings in themselves are there in the same quantity, let's say, the fact that the people who get that rent tend to be a smaller and smaller number of people and the people who pay that rent tend to be a bigger and bigger and bigger number of people. 
just that in itself, because <clears throat> that is why we talk about the 1%, who honestly uh, didn't used to be. I mean, uh, the way he phrases it, he phrases it like, no matter when back in history you go, there has always been uh, 1% of the population who has as much money from the total money in the world as it is now, which is obviously not true. I mean... Yeah, because he, uh, again, about sort of uh, relying on uh, different ideas people have. Yes, people always know that throughout history and that they also suspect that this is going to be the case in the future as well. There will all be, always be um, the upper crust, uh, a group of people that will have disproportionate uh, wealth. But, but the, the how, disproportion how, how big, was not yeah. the same. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Mankiv introduces a book by Golden and Katz called "The Race Between Education and Technology," and he references this book because he says that the authors argue that skill-biased technological change continually increases the demand for skilled labor. Uh, so, you know, you probably love this whole education oh, yes, is the solution to everything. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, because, yeah, this is, it's, it's going to be big. It's going to be big. So he goes on. By itself, this force, that is a skilled bias technological change, tends to increase the earnings gap between skilled and unskilled workers, thereby increasing inequality. Society can offset the effect of this demand shift by increasing the supply of skilled labor at an even faster pace as it did in the 1950s and 1960s. In this case, the earnings gap need not rise and indeed can even decline, as in fact occurred. But when the pace of educational advance slows down as it did in the 1970s, the increasing demand for skilled labor will naturally cause inequality to rise. The story of rising inequality, therefore, is not primarily about politics and rent-seeking, God forbid, but rather about supply Oh and my life. God. <laughs> uh, there, is, there is so much wrong with everything here. I mean, sure, I'm sure it is a, a problem of supply and demand, but this idea that if you educate enough people, by miracle, jobs will appear is completely unsustainable because what we have observed in skilled and unskilled labor is that a lot of the labor can now be done through different ways of machines and technology. And you do not need more people to do that job. You need less and less people. And it doesn't matter how educated those people are. You just are going to need less of them. Yeah, but also I think it's it's the case that uh, as we've seen uh, during the, the lockdown and everything, uh, a lot of occupations that people just sort of brush off uh, or deem low-skilled are actually essential. Like, I keep uh, joking with some of my friends that if, for instance, not just the people doing my job at my company, but like everyone having my occupation in the world would just stop, people would be like, yeah, okay, whatever. 
But if the garbage person, garbage man, garbage uh, disposal unit, whatever, or the cleaning staff, if they go on yeah, strike, we will we will notice. You can feel sure. it immediately. And, uh, what what I always find it's not necessarily apparent in this paragraph from this guy. But what I uh, genuinely hear in this sort of conversation is that somehow those sort of jobs are either jobs you do when you are really, really young and you start out and you need money or you just do them somehow in between the time you take to educate yourself because they, they, they talk about uh, these jobs like at some point there can be uh, zero sum of people doing them and that is obviously mm. not true first of all you just you genuinely need that those people to do the, those jobs and uh, also you will always have people who cannot reach a certain level of education due to different problems some of them that are fixable in the education system and other people just cannot reach those kinds of high levels uh, but but still or there they, are even even things there are even things like personal uh, sort of sure, obstacles yeah. that people might face so even if you have uh, material conditions that are uh, that that would in theory make uh, uh, education possible for for most people uh, you know, you might have problems in your family, emotional problems or things like that. And yeah, that no, can still hold definitely back, not so, yeah. everybody can be anything. That's that's for sure. And um, and we shouldn't want everyone to be, I don't know, a, a developer yeah, of or a brain surgeon. Um, one, yeah. one, one thing I've heard during this lockdown about... Um, the people that have been deemed essential workers, that some of those workers have been saying that they feel a lot more sacrificial than they feel essential. Mm, yeah. And, and I think that's sort of the issue because we look down towards those jobs and somehow we have this impression that we have an endless supply of these people that now we call essential workers, but we behave towards them like they are sacrificial. Yeah, and also uh, going back to the point you've made earlier about uh, automation is the thing that, yes, in theory, quite a few jobs that are considered menial or uh, low-skilled could be automated. They aren't because there isn't yet an incentive, uh, because it's cheaper to just have people on you know, very low wages do them. Uh, but uh, somehow, even though they aren't automated, they, uh, as you said, sometimes they get treated like they're just machines and uh, they, they aren't noticed. They are, as you said, looked down upon. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, uh, it's also weird in a way because I've been thinking about... Um, you know, uh, certain uh, jobs in uh, things like hospitality, catering. Uh, in Romania, as you said, and in many other countries, it's uh, very much a thing of, uh, well, you know, you're stuck in doing this job because, you know, you don't have anything better 
either because you haven't studied or maybe you're between jobs or you fall in on hard times. Uh, but it need not be mm-hmm. that case. I mean, you can have uh, uh, people take pride in that, in being a waiter or a maitre d' or uh, a chef or uh, anything of, in, of that sort. If you pay people well, if um, uh, if you make them feel like they should they should be proud of them doing a good job and you incentivize them to do a good job because you know you cannot uh, ask people oh well you know you should give uh, excellent service but I'm going to uh, give you minimum wage expect you to smile all the time uh, and then t- uh, tell you if you are sad or unhappy that well of course you are sad and unhappy because you're not giving 101 percent well, yeah, but you're not giving 101% because because everyone is sort of looking down on you and also you're getting paid peanuts. So yes, and and you if 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 somebody is asking you what your job is and you say yeah. you are a waiter, in a lot of countries, um I mean mostly I'm talking uh, Europe and America because I genuinely don't know what the view in societies from, say, Asia or Africa yeah. is. Uh, but in, in, in countries like our own, if you say you're a waiter, it's somehow people expect you to tell them how you are planning to stop being a waiter. <laughs> you know, like it's not a job in itself. And if you don't think of your job as this is my job in itself, of course, you will not put 100% in it because that's not what you're actually doing. You are just sort of stepping on something towards something else, which is absolutely fine if that is genuinely what you want to do. But a lot of the times, it just is not. It, it is that a person will make this sort of job their job for a lifetime and they will feel more and more ashamed of saying it the older they get yeah and this this definitely damages the person and it also damages the people who receive the service from that person so i don't see exactly who's benefiting from this except for the people who don't want to pay those people i mean yeah those yeah. those people are benefiting yeah <laughs> yeah um, I wanted to highlight a few things in uh, the excerpt mm-hmm. I read just uh, just a while ago because it's like a perfect cocktails of omissions. Uh, first off, he mentions the 50s and the 60s as a time when the earnings gap is mitigated by a rise in the level of education without <laughs> mentioning you know, oh, surely this is just an innocent omission on his part. Uh, so without mentioning the fact that at the time, the U.S. rolled out an impressive effort to educate its citizens, uh, you know, as part of the space race and in general um, because of the pressure posed by the USSR's arrival that offered up an alternative system mm-hmm. that countries around the world could sort of look at mm-hmm. and maybe adopt. Uh, and also the New Deal was also was still in place and uh, Keynes' uh, ideas uh, mm-hmm. ruled and 
you know, government intervention was deemed not only necessary at certain times, uh, but uh, also, um, uh, you know, taken for granted, you know, that it will happen. Yeah, granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, you know, Mankiff says that in the 70s, again, no major, no major political and economic shifts took place during this time. You know, we won't ma- mention anything. Uh, that the pace of education gains slows down. And it's only to be expected that since some rubes refuse to get an education, those who do will get paid more by their employers. And thus, inequality rises once again. But like... On the one hand, education is, that is made accessible to everyone is receiving less and less funding uh, from the 70s onward. And because the money is being redirected to private school, you are also messing with the quality of the education people without means have access to. Uh, and then on the other hand, those who are still able to afford an education, although not without getting massively indebted, are considered some of the most well-educated generations because you know you keep hearing this despite mm-hmm. all the sneering at younger generation they are the generations they are still more educated than their parents so you know okay it would follow that if you are one of the lucky people who manages to access education and have also opted for something that is really hot right now on the jobs market you should be good right and yet you still get people who yeah, they do earn more than others, but they are squeezed by their rents, health insurance, student debt, because most of the high-paying jobs are concentrated in cities that also have a higher cost of living. And of lastly, course. something he conveniently fails to mention once again is that most of the jobs created after the financial crisis were low-paying, precarious jobs. Uh, so, you know, many, many of the people who... Uh, managed to step out of unemployment after the financial meltdown uh, are working in the so-called gig economy. Mm -hmm. So is there a hunt for talent in some specific areas? Yeah, but these much sought after specialists are just a sliver of the overall labor force. I mean, I think our perspective coming from a completely different country than America Um, really helps us see the problem here because I am a, let's say, high-skilled individual being a medical doctor. And yet I earn not all that much if you tell my income to somebody in America. And yet, due to the fact that I could go to school without paying any particular amount of money, and uh, I had housing. I, I, I wasn't paying rent while living with my mom. Uh, we had our own home. And then I got the money for a new house also from my parents by selling another house. At none of these points, I had to make a huge investment that would weigh me down. And due to that fact, even if I actually have quite a modest earning for somebody who is highly skilled, I am actually doing fairly well. That I am sure a lot of people in America earning 
a lot more than me cannot afford. I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of, of, of people in America that would also be somewhat middle class as I am, uh, do not afford to actually build their own house, you know, and uh, go on, let's say, two holidays um, outside of their own country a year and eat at restaurants not and anymore. all of that. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, we're not talking about this weirdly out of space and time moment. But yeah, I mean, I am actually not paid all that much, even if I am a high skilled worker. My country overall has um, a lower income, even for highly skilled people. And still, because our overall system, even if fantastically shitty, is better. It makes my life be quite, you know, enjoyable and easy to live. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've hit upon uh, quite a few differences here because also in countries like Romania or or several other countries in Europe and elsewhere, I'm sure uh, you also have this sort of um, um, more tightly knit at least familiar relations mm-hmm. yes, maybe yes. than in the Absolutely. US mm-hmm. where also you know it's a huge as country and people are also more used to moving mm-hmm. uh, so I guess even family can seem far away and not just in terms of distance but also probably you become more independent because it's a must right mm-hmm. yeah uh, at a much younger age and you stay like that Uh, unless you have to literally go and move in with your parents because you cannot afford to live anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also with the sort of people you would um, have as your friends or acquaintances as an adult, right? Uh, and, And if you can only rely at most on your spouse or your partner to be there and help out financially at least mm-hmm. not to mention you know emotional labor and everything else that goes into uh, an individual's well-being mm-hmm. uh, then of course you are a lot more vulnerable in in terms of how your life gets messed up if uh, you have these huge income and wealth inequalities yes and not to mention the healthcare. i mean if oh, yeah. uh, if uh, you actually need to go to a hospital and you don't somehow become, I don't know, a gajillion thousand of dollars in debt due to that event, that most definitely helps you to keep being in that middle class. So, yeah, yeah definitely there are many, many things when you present such a scenario uh, as uh, this guy is doing here. I, he's most definitely willfully deceitful because he could just mention how things happen in other countries and he doesn't. I mean, you mean there are other places except the US? <laughs> yes, they are, but they all wish what? they were. The, all the other places that exist in the world, they all just cry in their hands because they are not America. We all know that, yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. we know that, yeah. Um, so so te- okay, tell me that's... more, tell me more. <laughs> yes, I, I know you are aching to hear more. 
Okay. Uh, so he says, uh, he references uh, Golden and Katz's book again, and he says they are right that the broad changes in inequality have been driven by the interaction between technology and education, rather than changes in rent-seeking through the political process. Then it would seem an unlikely coincidence that the parallel changes at the top have been driven by something entirely different. Rather, it seems that changes in technology have allowed a small number of highly educated and exceptionally talented individuals to command superstar incomes in ways that were not possible a generation ago. So he's basically implying that the rich are not only wealthier, but also smarter. Uh, <laughs> noted that uh, notice that his piece about the 1%, um, we're not talking about the average programmer and developer here, right? Uh, yeah. So these are the very, very, very rich. And people don't generally begrudge someone whose income is slightly higher because there is a momentary boom in an industry and thus a stronger demand for people with a particular uh, set of skills. Uh, we all know that some jobs pay more because not many people want to do them or are willing to go through a lengthier than usual training to perform them. People are generally angry about unreasonable differences in income and reward for one's work and expertise. Uh, where's the line between reasonable and unreasonable? Well, luckily, the differences that make most of us angry are huge and gaping enough to be obvious. Of course. I mean, <laughs> when you just have a guy who will become the first trillionaire at the same time where you have millions and millions of people out of work and basically having to struggle to stay alive... And the guy who is becoming a trillionaire is actually doing a public fundraising in order to give his employees, you know, um, time off if they are sick. I think we can sort of figure out where reasonable and unreasonable is. I mean, we have a long way to go uh, to just reach those very fine tuning <laughs> moments between reasonable and unreasonable. Yeah. We are, you know, we are at that moment where it, it, they are so humongous. I don't think there is a debate. Yeah, and, and however uh, way you want to slice it and dice, is, uh, dice it, there are 24 hours in a day and no matter how exceptionally high skilled the job you perform or how valuable whatever you perform is, uh, when, when the differences are just so huge, it's just, there, there's no logical way to explain it. Of course. So... It, yeah, it, it generally it doesn't have anything to do uh, when you get to that big amount of an income, it, it, it ceases to be related to your skill or the amount of work you put in. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is, again, uh, just a very slimy way of, uh, oh, yes, people will think, oh, one percent. So you're talking about rich people. And he is using this uh, uh, sort of big umbrella of occupations or characters that people might summon up mm -hmm. uh, in their in their heads when we're talking about the one percent. Mm -hmm. uh, because you, as you said, you might uh, you might throw in some people who you know well they are high skilled, so probably they get paid 
you know, quite well. And if they come from a family of equally high skilled people, they probably built up some wealth. So mm-hmm. they are rich as well. But nah, <laughs> yeah. no, not really. And then you point to those and you make people feel bad. Well, would you would you really uh, sort of uh, berate the, as you said, the physician or the poor uh, brain surgeon for their higher income? Well, no, no, we were no. not talking about them. No, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So very shifty, very shifty. Yeah. Um, so he quotes um, a paragraph from the book, aided by digital technologies, entrepreneurs, CEOs, entertainment stars, and financial executives have been able to leverage their talents across global markets and capture rewards that would have been unimaginable in earlier times. So this is Mankiw's argument that, oh, they aren't taking resources away from you. The economic pie just got larger, and so they get to have more pie. Because mm-hmm. again, this is an annoying way to avoid the actual debate because, as a rule, most people aren't particularly bothered by the fact that someone is earning a lot more than they used to, as long as what they themselves earn is enough to cover their needs. Of course. Um, and also, if they feel the reward, they, if they feel rewarded for their progress in their field. Or mm-hmm. for having uh, put in uh, an exceptional effort into a specific task and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who earn vastly more than others are, of course, a problem regardless of the general public's perception because, as we said, they have increased influence and political power uh, because of the, their wealth. But, you know, in terms of how the masses react, they can be placated for a very long time if their bellies are full <laughs> yeah which is a lesson some rich people occasionally forget somehow i don't know but it happens yeah apparently it's been a long time from i don't know the french revolution <laughs> <laughs> yeah that 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 moment in time generally this sort of people tend to love so much the beginning of the enlightenment mm. yeah well the you know that those those peaceful times Uh, so you would uh, say okay uh, what does Mankiw think about uh, progressive uh, taxation would that help Eh, he's not convinced a progressive system of taxes and transfers might make the outcome more equal but it would not address the underlying inefficiency for example if domestic firms are enriching themselves at the expense of consumers through quotas on imports as it is the case with some agribusinesses the solution to the problem entails not a revision of the tax code but rather a change in trade policy i am skeptical that such rent seeking activities are the reasons why inequality has risen in recent decades but i would support attempts to reduce whatever rent seeking does occur this is just insulting. Like, first off, this whole argument so far was about inequality as a result of slowing educational advancement. So maybe if you're going to act like you're providing an argument against redistribution as a way to reduce inequality, what's the whole idea with the trade agreement? Okay, but uh, yeah. secondly, you know, why not both? He literally mm-hmm. doesn't provide an argument. He just says, oh, well, I'm skeptical. Uh, but like, why? 
why shouldn't you operate changes both in terms of a revised trade agreement, if the trade agreement is bad for mm -hmm. either or both uh, sides, uh, and also redistribution for taxes? Like, what would redistribution mean? Uh, while these mythical creatures called job creators are still going to earn more money than they could possibly squander through, throughout their lives, workers would also get higher wages, so they would, as consumers, which they eventually end up being, mm -hmm. uh, have more income to pay for the product. So if they have cash to spare, they are likely going to want stuff, which means businesses can do business because they have someone to buy their shit. But no, we can't have the poors not be poor. Instead, let's give them loans. So that when things crash and burn, they are even more fucked. Demand's still not high enough. Look over there. What a delicious new market we can bring our products and services to. Possibly using our resources yeah. to quash any local competitor. Yeah. And this goes on and on and on. So, yeah. So, I don't know what, why, why, why it's so difficult to... Um, to concede that it might be a good idea to share some of that pie, even if the pie is getting bigger. Because, honey, if you if if you allow this discussion to start, you never know when it will end. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's it's always a the point is always to avoid mm -hmm. any meaningful discussion. I think uh, this is a good time to pause our discussion for this episode. Um, as always, ranting about things that annoy us takes up a lot more time than we expected. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but anywho, uh, let's wrap this up and we'll uh, see you guys next time. Bye! Bye.